to another episode of Bear Talk. My topic today is going to be the country of Hungary. Hungary uh, un- was a former communist country that underwent a pretty successful democratic transition after 1989. Um, but then in the last 10 years or so, Hungary has slidden into uh, uh, a kind of soft authoritarianism. So uh, the question for today will be, uh, what are the reasons that uh, after becoming a stable democracy, Hungary has, uh, has fallen into a kind of soft authoritarianism? Why has it fa- become more authoritarian than the neighboring countries in the region, which also underwent a democratic transition? And what are the prospects for restoring democracy to Hungary in the future? This is also a special uh, episode of Bear Talk, and for a number of reasons. First of all, it's actually a recording of a class session of mine. I teach a course with a colleague from political science at Texas Lutheran University called Democracies in Crisis. Uh, And I cover uh, Hungary since I have expertise in Hungary, and every year, uh, every time we teach this course, we, uh, I usually invite a number of guests to speak to the class about the situation in Hungary. So today, although I, I'm going to have a panel discussion, uh, it's actually a recording from one of my classes. Uh, the guests in this panel discussion uh, are Dalibor Rohach, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, he's written uh, a number of books. Um, one of them in, is called In Defense of Globalism. Another, the other is called Towards an Imperfect Union, a Conservative Case for the EU. And my other guest is Eva Bolog, uh, the author of Hungarian Spectrum. And this leads to the second reason why this is a special podcast, because the day after uh, I recorded, they had this class and recorded this class, uh, less than 24 hours after that, Ava Balog unexpectedly died of a heart attack. Um, so if you, uh, if you know anything about Hungary, then you certainly know who Ava Balog is. Uh, but if, for those of you who don't, aren't hung, hungry experts, I'll, I'll say a few words. Uh, so Ava was herself Hungarian. She participated in the Hungarian Revolution in 1956 as a student and was forced to flee from the country. So she fled Hungary in 1956. Eventually, she ended up in the United States. Uh, she earned a PhD in history uh, at Yale University. Afterwards, she was uh, a dean at a college at Yale. Uh, and she retired, but then in recent years, in the last 15 years or so, she has maintained uh, a blog called Hungarian Spectrum. Uh, and calling it a blog, although I guess technically it's a blog, it's it's uh, doesn't quite capture the term blog doesn't quite capture how significant uh, Hungarian Spectrum has been because essentially what Ava did was she wrote an article every day uh, about the situation, political situation in Hungary in English, which she posted on her blog. Uh, and in doing this, she uh, provided a lot of access to the country f- uh, to people who don't uh, know Hungarian and provide a lot of information about the hung- about Hungary in the last 15 years or so. Um, so the blog itself was very important in getting information out about Hungary. Ava was a, a pretty severe critic of the current government in Hungary led by Viktor Orban. Um, and this is sort of her other bit of significance is that she was really uh, – kind of the center or the contact point for all of 
all of us, because I'm included in this, who uh, consider ourselves critics of Viktor Orban and who are fighting for democracy in Hungary because Eva knew everybody in Hungary. She uh, put us in contact with each other. Uh, she was a great resource for um uh, you wanted to know something about what was going on in Hungary. If I had a question about something, she could always answer it. Uh, she could uh, she would put us in touch with each other, uh, and so she is really just a, a, an important uh, person, both her blog, but also uh, who she was as a person. And so her her unexpected death um, it, it leaves a hole that just isn't going to be filled. Um, and so I feel very lucky that uh, I was able to talk to Ava. Um, a day before she died um, in my class, and so I'm going to share that conversation with you uh, as a kind of tribute to Ava. All right, so thanks both to Ava and Dalibor for coming, coming, uh, dropping into our class, and um, I'm not really going to introduce them because I introduced them last time. So we have Dalibor Rohat, who uh, is a political science at the American Enterprise Institute, and we have Ava Balog, who is a the author of Hungarian Spectrum, a hungry expert who in, in this in this blog. So, anyway, I want to that that's the introduction. I want to get right to the conversation. So, um, I asked you guys, the students, to read this paper by Dalibor, which he where he talks about the difference between uh, how popular well the difference between populism in the Czech Republic and, and Hungary. And so, I was just going to ask Dalibor to maybe walk through uh, the main ideas in his paper. First, so Dalber, maybe I'll go ahead and hand it over to you. Thanks, David, and hello, everybody. It's, it's great to be with you. So I've been interested in this subject for for quite some time now. I wrote my first somewhat alarmist op-ed about the state of Hungarian democracy back in 2012 for the Weekly Standard magazine. Some of you might remember, which went out of business a few years ago. Um, and it made me somewhat of a lone voice on the centre-right. So I work for AI, which is a sort of centre-right conservative-ish uh, institution in, in Washington. And I've noticed with some concern that we have more and more people on the conservative right, particularly in, in, in the States, who have been looking to Hungary and Poland and some other authoritarian populist governments, if you will, with, with a degree of admiration rather than with with concern. And I think that's fundamentally, I think my sort of main message is that that's fundamentally misguided. Not because there wouldn't be no policy particulars on which you could not agree with leaders of Hungary and Poland, but, but primarily because the current governments in both of these countries uh, have really pushed their countries on, on distinctly authoritarian trajectories. And uh, that's something that should be obviously of concern to policymakers. Uh, but it's also an interesting, I think it raises a host of interesting puzzles for social scientists and political, political scientists. Uh, but you go back 15, 20 years uh, and you sort of look at the sort of consensus within, within people who were studying the, among people who were studying the subject, uh, you would notice that uh, the conventional wisdom you know, 20 years ago was that uh, countries that have successfully democratized uh, would not backslide. Uh, Adam Przeworski, this famous American-Polish political scientist, he collected data on democracies going back to 1950. Uh, and he essentially noticed that 
once a democracy, a new democracy goes through, through a few electoral cycles and attains a certain level of economic development, it's very hard for, for the democracy to sort of go back to, to a sort of situation of authoritarianism or authoritarianism or, or one party one party rule. And back at the time, actually, when people looked at post-communist Central and Eastern Europe, they were quite impressed by what has been happening in these countries. You know, there have been sort of successful changes of government, successful sort of you know, elections, party systems that sort of made sense by, by sort of Western standards. You had center-left parties, center-right parties. Uh, and, you know, the, the region looked uh, surprisingly normal and sort of consolidated. And, and, and so I think it took many people by surprise that in places like Hungary and Poland, you've seen this, you know, what has been called democratic backsliding or de-democratization or erosion of, of, of democratic institutions. Uh, We've seen other examples around the world in places like Turkey, um, the Philippines, uh, India to some extent. Uh, I think what distinguishes these cases from earlier instances of de-democratization or democratic backsliding is, is the gradual character of, of these erosions. So, you know, in the past, you would, you would think that the, that, that the democracy would end with the bank, that there would be a military coup or, or something, you know, charismatic leader, uh, sort of destroying democratic institutions overnight, this sort of Reichstag fire moment. Well, that's not really happening anymore. Rather, you have this gradual erosion of checks and balances, gradual executive aggrandizement, you know, entrenchment of incumbents, and you sort of keep the facade of, of elections and opposition parties and, you know, some independent media but this sort of tilts the political playing field in a way that makes it very difficult for opposition to play a meaningful, meaningful role. And, uh, and I think Hungary has been, has been a good example of that, or good, well, a, a sort of an example that sort of illustrates this, this, the, 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 this problem. So since Orban came to power in 2010, uh, on the back of a, I think, 52% majority in terms of popular vote, which gave him, thanks to the vagaries of, of Hungary's electoral system, a constitutional majority in parliament. He essentially adopted a new constitution written on purely partisan lines, uh, overhauled the, the, the electoral system that further strengthened Fidesz's position, you know, gerrymandered electoral districts, strengthened the sort of majoritarian winner takes all aspects of, 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 of elections. Uh, both in Hungary and in Poland, we've seen also sort of politicization of courts and an end of constitutional review of legislation, uh, attacks on, on independent media. Again, not through sort of overt, um, you know, it's, it's different from sort of, you know, the, the, the era of, of, of sort of traditional authoritarianism or totalitarianism. What, what you see is, is that you have policies surrounding media licenses that are kind of arbitrary, but, but still sort of, you know, veiled in, 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 in some sort of idea of, of, of legality and using sort of legal tools to, to render, uh, render opposition outlets financially unviable uh, and so on and so forth. You have attacks on civil society, you know, the, the laws that label foreign funded and non-governmental organizations as foreign agents, essentially. Um, you've seen also on the sidelines, the a sort of extraordinary rise in corruption, patronage, and 
and and and and just kleptocracy kleptocracy in, in in Hungary, where the inflow of EU funds has played an important role in sort of uh, strengthening these 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 patronage networks uh, close to the close to the ruling party. There is also a sort of geopolitical element to all this, where through which uh, Hungary has really been uh, the prime uh, prime. Uh, Sort of mover for uh, prime defender of, of, of Chinese and Russian interests in in the EU and, and within the uh, within the transatlantic alliance. And my question, as a, from a sort of social science perspective, is why you know are these two countries, uh, namely Poland and Hungary, uh, really seemingly more at risk of of de-democratization or, or authoritarianism than than other countries? And so I, I looked at a sort of you know, natural experiment of sorts at, at, at the cases of Hungary and the Czech Republic, which is in some ways similar. Uh, you know, both countries have seen populist leaders coming to power. Both countries have this sort of communist era legacy they have to deal with. Uh, both countries are at a similar level of economic development. Yet it was only Hungary out of the two that really went through a, a significant cycle of de-democratization or, or, or democratic backsliding, not the Czech Republic. And, uh, and what I find in the paper, I try to argue that uh, really the differences in formal institutions and sort of checks and balances and the fact that uh, the Czech Republic had a fairly sort of sophisticated constitutional setup uh, created in, in the 1990s that commanded consensus across all political parties uh, was, was important. Uh, whereas uh, really Hungary lived since the early 1990s with a sort of certain contested legacy of 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 of, of the negotiated transfer of power uh, in in 1989 and in 1990 and uh, and and that really fed into the cycle of polarization through which uh, the two main political blocs saw each other not just as Contestants in, in in some shared system of democratic rules, but but as mortal enemies, and and and, and this sort of process of delegitimization really has has progressed uh, to a stage in which uh, there is a winner takes all system in which if you are an opposition party, you are not only excluded from government, but from just participating in any meaningful way in in in, in, in sort of democratic governance or or controlling or checking checking uh, holding the government to. To account, you never really had that in the Czech Republic, partly through sort of formal institutions. Um, you know, the electoral system is very different uh, and makes uh, makes it much more difficult to command significant majorities in the legislature. You had traditionally had coalition governments in a place like the Czech Republic, so 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 you you don't have the same sort of sort of dynamic. But but I I would argue that a lot of it actually boils to these choices made early on in the transition, both, by the way, by the uh, Communist Party itself, right? So, so, so Czech communists, about after the fall of communism, essentially decided to uh, retain the Communist Party brand and not go through any sort of changes. And as a result of that, they've become uh, not, not exactly a marginal political force. I mean, they sort of remained in, par they remained in parliaments until this year. Uh, but they had never really sort of directly participated in government. Whereas uh, in 1994 in Hungary, 
uh, the sort of rebranded post-communist party made a comeback and and really that uh, helped create this narrative that that Fidesz seized on in in in, in the following decade that that the post-communist transition was hijacked had been hijacked by communists and and and, and really that the real sort of end of the of the communist era only came in 2010 with with, with Fidesz's Fidesz's overwhelming uh, victory in the in the in the parliamentary uh, parliamentary elections. Uh, so, so I suppose the paper in itself, uh, you know, is is a good sort of com- might be a good conversation starter on. Uh, when you sort of look at the region from a comparative perspective, because sometimes these countries are sort of seen as a homogeneous blob, particularly by, by some policymakers in Washington. They are different. Even Poland and Hungary are very different. So the de-democratization has, has progressed much further in a, in a place like Hungary relative to Poland, and, and, and the prospects of, of, of those two countries are, 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 are quite different. And then, you know, the, the, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, the Baltic states are in a, in a, in a, in a completely different place altogether and i think that does matter uh, for how we think about the region and how you know for example u.s policymakers who want to engage constructively the region should should approach it um so galiber let me let me let me ask you a question here so then uh, uh of course i know a lot more about hungary than the other countries um but so what i thought i read and of course it could be just reading through my bias i i thought that uh when you were just sort of explaining some of the reasons why uh hungary sort of is in worse shape right or has gone slid more deeply into authoritarianism in the czech republic or uh some of the other countries i thought that the some of the factors were uh, basically, the electoral system. Hungary had a very disproportionate electoral system, which yeah. made it possible for the governing, the whoever won the election, to really rule without a coalition. So that they, without the coalition uh, politics, that's not normal with a parliamentary democracy. You know, you can't gain total control. You got to negotiate, and so you had a situation where you had this the the electoral system. In Hungary created these blocks. Okay, I thought that was yeah. one factor, and then. Uh, I can't remember if you said this or not, but I thought you did. There was a, the Hungarian system was weaker on the checks and balances. So it only had a unicameral parliament. There's only one chamber, right? It didn't have two chambers, which I guess in the Czech Republic, they have two chambers. It has a weak president in Hungary. Um, and those factors also made it easier. Uh, did you, is it, would you agree with that? You think that? Uh, yes, I, I think that's, that's, that, that, that would be part of the argument. And then I would go further than that and say that, Obviously, these sort of constitutional choices are not random, right? They resulted from sort of discrete political decisions in the 1990s. And uh, what really makes the Czech Republic stand apart is that you had uh, a sort of agreement of sort of non-communist political forces in the early 1990s on the sort of basic rules of the game going forward. For the you know for, for for the for the political system, which resulted in the 1992 constitution, which would envisage things like having you know a senate, a strong constitutional court. There was also I think a sort of pool of talent you can draw on to recruit judges for 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 the sort of new judicial system. The Czech Republic also had a I think this this sort of question of of transitional justice uh, is, is 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 quite important, right? So so the Czech Republic from from the beginning had a very credible system of lustrations through which members of the former communist secret police could not access 
certain jobs in the in the government administration and all of that was much more contested in the hungarian context. okay yeah so hungary didn't yeah. so right the illustration for the students this process of sort of identifying who was a former say communist agent or something and sort of sort of making judgments about who was suitable for public life after the, the legacy of communism that's what illustration i guess refers to and then um and so the the communist party or the reformed communist party in hungary was stronger because of the way hungary was basically a more liberal communist uh, country right. and so the it sort of continued on uh into uh, after 1989 and then that created this sort of contested legacy or the or this this polarized politics in in hungary you were is that right i think that's exactly right that you had essentially a communist sort of form of sort of communist totalitarianism which was much stricter and much more repressive in in Czechoslovakia in the late 1980s relative to Hungary which resulted then once the regime collapsed in a, in a somewhat cleaner break with the past that in Hungary which sort of would allow some opposition activity and even private enterprise in the late 1980s and and and, and as a result had a uh, uh, just much more continuity between, between sort of the, the old regime and the new regime, which was something that was really sort of weaponized by, by Viktor Orban and by Fidesz in, 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 in the notice where he sort of described, you know, the center left as just, you know, another iteration of the old communists. You couldn't really make that argument in the Czech context where, where the Czech social democracy, which would be the largest sort of center left party after, after, after 1993, uh, was essentially constituted by people who were not part of the previous communist sort of nomenclatura or, 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 or the old, old elite. So, so that, that's all part of the, part of the argument. Obviously, it's sort of very, you know, like this is not a sort of uni. Yeah, you know, there the, 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 the are many factors at play. Like these are extremely complicated processes that that were that were sort of playing playing out in in in, in both places. Uh, so, so it's not easy to sort of disentangle these these causal mechanisms, so to speak. All right. Well, that sounds uh, sounds reasonable to me. Let's see, Ava. Do you have any thoughts on this about uh, about what happened in Hungary? How come Hungary went uh, so far south? Or do you do you accept this? what Dalibor said or this kind of account or do you think it overlooks something? What What are your thoughts? Well, well I, I really do think that uh, uh, the transformation from one party system to multi-party system uh, was rather uh, smooth in Hungary, easier than uh, in Czechoslovakia at that time, or or even Poland, uh, because it wasn't such an oppressive state. And but but I don't think that that it's by itself would lead to the kind of undemocratic regime which we have now. Um, I I I think that when it comes to these very uh, kind of nostalgic uh, uh, feeling in, in Hungary by, by many people, uh, for the Kada regime is, has much more to do with the nature of that regime before 1990. And, and 
that would have also, I think, made it more difficult uh, to kind of clear the decks, you know, um, and say, all right, you, you are all gone. Uh, because there were some people who were very uh, heavily uh, involved and, and played a very ugly role, while others were rather helpful. And in some cases, they were even working for a uh, reform of, uh, of the communist system. Now, I think that even F uh, the Fidesz guys at the very beginning, like Kovir, for example, who has been in the news so much in the last two days, um, was really thinking in kind of um, making the socialist system a nice one. And uh, perhaps they saw themselves as being part of that new leadership. So you cannot quite, I, anyway, I don't believe that you can close the door on, on one regime and pop you are into another regime and we forget about it. No, it's in everybody's mind and hearts and body and thoughts. And it takes generations to get rid of that. So let me ask this question, okay? Let me throw this out to both of you guys. Uh, to what extent is the sort of demise of Hungary from the point of view of democracy really just has to be explained in terms of Viktor Orban, that it was this particular personality so, I mean, I'm, uh, who uh, played a key role because he was partly a skillful politician and partly completely unscrupulous, um, uh, and that without a politic, so that, that Orban himself is sort of just an accident uh, would have accounted for this. And the, and, the, and the way I would make, I don't know if it's true, but I'd throw this argument out, is I think that part of the story of the decline of Hungary has to do with the situation in 2006, right? So in 2006 was the uh, uh, 50th anniversary of the Hungarian Revolution. Uh, and it was also an election year and uh, Orban had lost the election. Um, and after he lost the election, uh, he, well, it was the second time he lost the election, he really, really just started to attack the, uh, the whole system, uh, uh, or, you know, attack the government, attack the system. And then there was this leaked tape uh, where the prime minister, Yuchan, said that, you know, we were lying and so forth. And he used that to sort of totally turn the population against the um, uh against the government. So, so he that he sort of created the, in addition to those structural uh, problems, he, Orban created a kind of condition on the ground in Hungary between 2006 and 2010 that um, made it possible for him to just sort of rewrite, to change everything. So I don't know, let me just ask Ava first, what do you think of that? You think, what do you think of that? Uh, I would put it to 2002. Okay. That's when he lost the election. And he thought it was hardly unfair. And that was the time when he said that the nation cannot be in opposition. That meant that the nation was he and his followers. And anyone outside of that circle is an enemy. And that, and that is still the case today. Um, so I would go back to 2002 
And I think that his personality has a heck of a lot to do uh, with the situation in Hungary today. Uh, he is uh, uh, pathologically, uh, I mean, he, he wants power so badly that I think he would go at any length to keep that power. And he's going to do, uh, there will be fraud, there will be cheating, there will be uh, all sorts of illegal things, but he is intent on winning this election. Now, as of now, it doesn't look too promising for him. And this is what I wanted to talk about later. Okay. But I think right now, uh, uh, Victor Orban is in the trouble. Uh, All right, so I, let's get let's get to that in one second. Let me just ask Dalibor what do you think about the Victor. If, if we say it's Victor Orban, are you going to be give a political science answer? Say it's the system, or what, what do you think of how much does Victor Orban as a person re- explain uh, what's happened in Hungary? I don't think it's a sort of binary choice we have to make between you know a sort of great man theory of Hungary and and a sort of structural systemic. Uh, sort of theory of what, what what has happened is really you know like those are two different sets of lenses that that that, that help you answer slightly different questions about uh, you know what about, about why what happened um, happened and uh, obviously the the figure of Viktor Orban and the sort of sheer you know political skill and ruthlessness and the way uh, you know he became radicalized in a way after being voted out of power in 2002 uh, is an important component of the story. I would also argue that, uh, you know, these sort of cycles of, 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 of polarization, the extent to which parties, both the sort of left of center parties and, and right of center parties were using for a long time, things like patronage uh, and, and sort of, you know, giving sort of, you know, jobs in the public administration to, to political loyalists, like that's something that goes back to the 19. 19- 90s, you know, the sort of contested nature of, you know, like the judiciary supposedly being weaponized by former communists to entrench the center left and prevent change, right? Like these, these narratives, uh, you know, there is a fertile ground for those things that, and, and those things, you know, have to do with the nature of, of the particular nature of the Hungarian transition. I'm not sure what the sort of counterfactuals to those things are. Like, I'm not saying that things should have been done differently necessarily. It's just, you know, Hungary sort of went on this on this path, and there is there is a lot of sort of path dependency in these in these in these institutional choices that sort of shaped political competition in in a certain way, and uh, and and then also made made Hungarian democracy vulnerable to you know ruthless actors like like Viktor Orban. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's Ava, go ahead. Let's uh, tell me why you think. I, you... I don't think it's so much the transition. I really think that the whole structure of the electoral system, the um, the setup of, of having a unicameral system uh, where it was easy to get the two-thirds majority with all the so-called cardinal laws, all this helped Orban to fulfill his mission in quotation marks. Um, Without them, he couldn't have gone anywhere. So, 
Okay, I want to, Apis, I want you to talk about the current situation. I'm just going to throw in a story here because uh, this is why Mike asked the Victor Orban question. So I was in Hungary. I was on sabbatical. I was in Hungary in 2006. And I was living in right downtown, uh, right where the the big uh, sort of riot or demonstration was, right there at the Forensic Terra. This, uh-huh. uh, and I was there uh, that day with my kids. We walked all over the city. It was a big anniversary for the revolution. We saw everything. I saw some demonstrations. They didn't seem such a big deal. I was at Astoria. That's where, where Orban was going to give a speech that kicked this riots off. And then I went home, you know, and uh, and I remember, and I was living in an apartment with it looked onto a into a, uh, a courtyard, and I was watching the World Series basically on the computer, and I suddenly my eyes were hurting and stuff, and it was like tear gas had flown in over everything over the, you know, the building into the courtyard. I had to close all the windows, and then I went and I um, I turned on the TV. I saw everybody out front of my building uh, demonstrating. I said, well, maybe I'll check it out. I went over to the door. And I heard gunshots in the in the you know and and not just like one or two like brr, brr, uh, in the uh, in the stairwell. So I was scared, you know. So I went in and I, I watched this whole thing. And then I saw the you know the next day the videos of the police you know throwing rocks at the demonstrators. And I was so appalled uh, by what I took to be this sort of police brutality, uh, uh, you know, and the incompetence of the uh, Yurchan government. That I thought, well, I mean, I thought it was horrible. I, I thought that these guys needed to go. And it was only later, I wasn't a sophisticated, you know, observer of Hungarian politics. It was only later that I realized it was like a setup that, I mean, that, that Orban had kind of orchestrated a whole lot of that. And so I was completely duped. And I think that, um, I mean, this is maybe not, I think lots of people were duped by what happened uh, in 2006. Um, he just made clear that they will get stupider and stupider about it and uh, did such a propaganda that at the end you know it looked as if you know they were innocent little right lambs. And I didn't, they right. were not innocent little lambs no. They, no, no. they were uh, they were more police were hurt than uh than uh, but you are right the police were totally incompetent yes but otherwise, um, they, they were under attack. Right. So I didn't know that. So I think I myself was a reasonably smart person and I got duped. And, and uh, so I, could, I, I anyway, so I, I think that 2006, because of all the demonstrations, is an important part of the story. I mean, that's just my, from sure, my sure, point of I view. Sure, sure, I understand that. Uh, but I, let, I just watched it on yeah, TV here. Yeah, I, I was right there, man. And then and the next I day I'd take my kids... Here. It was tear gas. The next day, you couldn't walk out in the streets. There was so much tear gas. It was just, there were huge barriers. It was really kind of a strike, uh, 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 really amazing. It made a big impression on me at the time. Uh, okay, let me, Ava, let me, why don't you describe the situation in Hungary uh, today and why you think Orban is in big trouble? Let, let's just get the, so just so the students are clear, there's elections coming up. Well, you should know that, but there'll be elections coming up in, in April or May. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and so uh, anyway, it's, it's going to be different than the last couple of elections. So, Ava, maybe just say a little bit about why you think Orban is in trouble right well, now. Well, I, I think that he's in trouble both at home and abroad. So let's start with abroad. The, uh, he has no friends in the European Parliament, or put it that way, too few. Uh, the European Commission was kind of kind to him for a while, 
uh, but the European Parliament is pushing the European Commission to take a stronger line. And in fact, they are. I mean, the, the money coming from Brussels at the moment is suspended. Uh, he earlier refused to take the loan. Now he has to go to Central Asia to get loans at most likely at a high rate, high, a great deal more higher rate than, than he could get it from the European Union. Then there is, a, and maybe your students need a little help here, um, that um, in the European Parliament, the parliamentary groups are not by nationality, but by political views, political uh, views. Um, EPP, which means European People's Party, was the right of center, is, is the right of center um, committee, or, 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 or how could I should say, say it, the uh, faction. Uh, it was the biggest one, and they were helping Orban and they defended Orban because, after all, Fidesz belonged to their group. Uh, now, by now, EPP got very tired of Orban, and it looked as if he was going to be kicked out. So, in a great hurry, he left, and now he stands alone, and he is trying to decide or try to convince other groups to take him over, uh, which hasn't happened yet, which is a great disadvantage for Fidesz in the European Parliament. Now, the European Commission, I already said that there is no money coming. Now comes loss of friends. Just lately, Orban lost two friends, Bobish in the Czech Republic. And it looks as if the Bulgarian prime minister is also on his way. Now he still has Poland and Slovenia, but I don't think Poland is very happy that Hungary says not a word about Belarus. And even Slovenia, I saw on Twitter, Janusz, uh, uh, Jansha, uh, say something nice about uh, how terrible the Belarus are, uh, Russian are, and Hungary refuses to, to say the same. So the Slovak, Slovak foreign minister is no friend of Orban, and the new German government is not going to be a friend of, of today's Hungary. So that's abroad. At home, uh, there is uh, the secret of the the, the secret of the, 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 of the two thirds majority. We talked about this. That could could be maintained as long as Orban managed to succeed splitting the opposition to the right and to the left, hoping that these two groups, especially the right, which was pretty much far right, will never get together. 
Well, eventually the far right group, Jobbik, and got somewhat uh, moderated <clears throat> and centralized, or rather turned turn toward the center. And they managed to have a group, as one group. So it became very much like a two-party system, like let's say the American uh, system, where one opposition member will stand against a Fidesz candidate. Once that is the case, uh, uh, there are 106 electoral districts, uh, a great number will most likely be won by the opposition. Then there is the question of the new the choice for the car, car, the choice of the prime minister, and they picked a relative newcomer who seems to be extremely uh, popular, especially with the youth. And this is the group which really, really uh, goes out to vote. But I have the feeling that this time voting will be very high. And as long as voting is high, the opposition has a very good chance of winning. Now, of course, uh, Orban may have a few tricks up in his sleeve, but for the time being, if that weren't the case, right now, the opposition leads by four percentage point over the Fidesz. Now, uh, as for the new prime minister, this is an interesting situation because he is not a man of the center left, while all the other parties, all six parties, are on the more or less on the on the left. If even Jobbik is on the left in in on many many uh, uh, aspects. So how? Uh, Peter Marquis Zoy will fare with the party leaders who are on the other side. I don't know how this is going to work out. Uh, he, he's, um, he thinks that his way of handling things, which is almost beating, be, beating Orban with his own, own clubs. Um, he, he, for example, uh, talks about the immigration or, or, or migration uh, as something which Orban is guilty of. And I am afraid I don't like this. I, I think this is... Um, um, strengthening the, uh, the xenophobia of the Hungarian people. And I, I don't think this is a very good idea. Well, we will see what happens. Uh, the new chairman of Momentum, one of the, of the liberal parties there, one of the liberal parties, they already raised her voice that she didn't like um, this uh, anti-foreign talks because he's even complaining about guest workers. So 
Okay. So let me, let's just go quickly over. So I just want so there are a couple things. Uh, so uh, you're, of course, you're an optimist. So, so the, uh, yeah, I am. And, 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 so um, let's just, so make sure this, I want to make sure the students are, are clear. So the, part of the system that Orban created it was one that made it in basically impossible for the opposition to win unless they were united like a single party because the electoral system yes. is designed for two parties. So yes. this was very hard for the opposition to unite because it's on the total spectrum from the far right to the far left or so. And so they never could unite and it was a, it was a cakewalk for Orban to win the election. This year, however, the opposition has united. They ran a common, they had a primary where they selected their prime minister candidate. They coordinated all their candidates. So they have a, they're all, all walking. It's a little, uh, they're rough edges, but they're basically walking in step. Yeah. And so they're running like a single party. So this, this uh, gives them a chance because, you know, if they're, uh, you know, uh, as the guy, the candidate, Mark Izai, says, look, you vote for Fetus or not Fetus. This is your choice. And by making this uh, the choice that stark, there are a lot of people who don't don't want Fetus, and now they ha they'll all vote for the opposition candidate, or that's the thinking. So uh, so in this respect, um, uh, Fetus had, or the opposition has a good chance, and polls show that the opposition is ahead by, you know, four percentage points or something. Uh which is why Ava is optimistic. Now, I, I actually am pessimistic still. Um, I don't know, Dalibor, do you want to say something? Or I'll, I'll give the reasons for my pessimism, but I'll let Dalibor say something if he wants. Sure. Um, first of all, I wanted to say that I had to smile a little when Professor Balog said that um, that Orban just lost two friends in the EU. And I thought she would mention Angela Merkel, but she went on to mention Andre Babbage and 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 Bolton Borisov, uh, I think the role of Angela Merkel and 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 this sort of you know her sort of instinctive avoidance of conflicts both within EPP and within the EU as a as a whole played a massive role in in all of this. Um, and I don't necessarily even mean that as a criticism. I think she has good reasons for behaving the way she. She, she she does, but one of the inadvertent effects of this has really been the, the entrenchment of Fidesz and, and the sort of the knowledge that that ultimately when it when it comes to the really consequential uh, consequential decisions within the EU uh, that they can count on on on, on, on on the German Christian Democrats on Angela Merkel. Um, and so that's gone now with the with the new governing well, yes, and, and also uh, uh they they don't understand Orban. Or Orban is not someone you sit down and negotiate with. That's, you don't. You just show that you are just not not going to tolerate that. That the appeasement doesn't work. Never work with him. He always has a way to to get out of a situation. Uh, that situation, and he always managed to fool them. Fool them. So, I don't know. Yes, Mer Merkel is Merkel was no angel. No. <laughs> All right. I, mean, I, mean, I meant that just as a, as a sort of side note. And I think I'm going to preempt David and his sort of pessimism by by voicing my my, my sort of two, two cents on this, uh, okay. which has to do with the election. So, so yes, on the one hand, it is. Uh, it is encouraging news that the opposition have understood the nature of the game that they are playing 
because in other countries that have sort of suffered from similar backsliding, most notably in Russia, Vladimir Putin has really benefited from from the dysfunction of the opposition and their inability to sort of get their act together. And and actually, both Orban and Putin have, you know, worked behind the scenes to render the opposition dysfunctional, you know, creating, you know, coming up with fake opposition candidates and sort of splitting splitting different votes of uh, different groups of, 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 of voters, etc., etc. So, so, so the fact that this is a um, this election is going to be close, and that 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 Orbán uh, is facing, you know, a very plausible prospect of losing the election itself is is encouraging. However, and there is first of all, there is one thing that has to do with the elections that that David has been very vocal in in sort of tweeting about, which which is the fact that uh, the the sort of electoral law has been changed in Hungary that will allow Fidesz to get away with all sorts of practices that uh really would not be seen as compatible with free and fair elections for example the idea of same day voter registration which could allow in principle could allow fides or you know groups close to fides to bus hungarians living outside of hungary to swing districts the day of the election to register them in a swing district and have them vote in a swing district to to sort of uh shift the the result of the election in in fidesz's um favor there are all sorts of rules sur- surrounding uh, um sort of ballot secrecy that could be broken in especially in sort of smaller communities smaller districts where uh, there would be some sort of local grandees that have that, that that can sort of bully people or 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 would not use these sort of patronage networks so so and and also with the 2006 experience you know like there are precedents for fidesz not recognizing results of of of, of elections and like you know this country has had a similar episode earlier this year so 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 i think we have to sort of brace for a situation in which uh there could be unrest that could be less than a sort of fully civilized transfer of power in hungary next year that's that's one thing the other thing has to do with Yes, the opposition being very heterogeneous and eclectic group that uh, might not be easily amenable to uh, sort of you know coherent governing that that, that that makes that makes sense. In in the nine in the late nineteen nineties, I'm I'm originally from Slovakia. We had this sort of experience with a semi-authoritarian leader in the nineteen nineties in Slovakia, whose name was Vladimir Mitchell. He was voted out in nineteen ninety-eight and was replaced by a very broad governing coalition. Which was nevertheless uh, sort of glued around the idea of Slovakia being a country that fundamentally belonged to the West, and we wanted to catch up with other countries in terms of our accession to NATO and the European Union, and we eventually did. Uh, but once that anchor is no longer there, once you don't have that sort of same shared goal, uh, it might be hard to focus people's minds, right, in, in quite the same way, and you have this really diverse, diverse group of political parties that might enjoy a fairly narrow majority. And, and, and so how that will make for a sort of successful governing strategy remains unclear. And I have to say, I'm also slightly nervous about some of the pronouncements coming from, 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 from the opposition, especially the sort of promises for sweeping changes, for example, constitutional changes, when it's not obvious that 
um, the opposition will enjoy a, 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 a two-third majority to, to execute those changes. And, and so I do fear that, uh, you know, this sort of cycle of you know, polarization and, and sort of delegitimization and, and these massive swings and, and, and winner takes all politics are not going to necessarily end in 2022, even if Viktor Orban is defeated. So, okay. so that's so. Dalibor and Ava have reservations about the opposition guy Monarchy's eye. I I personally like him. So, but that I could be wrong, and they could be right. Um, so that's one thing. And let me just say a couple more things, Ava, and I'll let you respond about why I'm pessimistic. So, first of all, let's just um, the the way this electoral system works that Orban has created. So, just so so that everyone, I may get it wrong actually, but so when the people vote. Uh, they they vote sort of twice. They have a, a party list. They vote for the national party they want, and I think that the opposition will win that. They'll get the the more people will vote for the opposition on the party list than than will vote for Fidesz it, 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 probably. But then there's also they have to vote from their local districts for their local representatives. Okay. And then the uh, in that case, uh, first of all, the districts are gerrymandered so that they favor uh, Fidesz, so that you're gonna get you're gonna get representatives in parliament through these uh, districts and then in addition to that there's some sort of system of winner compensation so that when you when a candidate wins i may get this wrong so you guys can correct me but i'm roughly correct when if a candidate wins the district then all the sort of extra votes so if the, if, if the opposition gets 500 and, and, and the winner gets 1,000, then there's 500 more votes that are put onto the national list. All right. So this creates a very disproportional system. So by winning the local districts, you actually increase your, your party, your, your national votes. Um, and so it's a very disproportional system, which is favored for Fidesz. So there are, you know, I don't know it, but based on analysis, so there's this 21 research center, which does an, an analysis of the electoral system. They say that the opposition has to win by at least four or three or four percentage points to get a slim majority. So they, they have to win the election. If this analysis is correct, by 50, they have to get 52% of the vote to, to get a major, just to win the election. Fetus could get win the election with uh, losing the popular vote. And so it's going to be close. And then you have to put in the possibility, I think the real not just a possibility, the reality that fetus will look to cheat. They, they they can bust people in because they've changed the law so that you can vote in any district, oh, right? Yeah. So they can bust people. So all these things just really, e even if the opposition wins more votes, they're going to lose. So that's what I think. So, okay, Ava, so I'll let you uh, go <laughs> ahead and respond. Uh, even if that isn't the case, uh, uh, Dolibor is quite right that if they win, um, it will be very, very difficult. The, the treasury is most likely not zero, but minus. Uh, uh, these people are young and, and inexperienced. They have been in politics for 10 years, all right, but they never had any chance to do anything except sit there and complain. Um, uh, the whole system is emptied out. Um, they don't will not even have the opportunity to uh, to run their universities, state universities, because it was kind of privatized, taken over by boards um, and foundations, um, with of course Fides. Uh, party 
chiefs. So the whole thing is pretty, pretty difficult. I mean, I am not saying that it's going to be a wonderful opportunity for everybody. It will be very difficult. All right. So let's let me this. Well, let me see. Does any students do any students have any questions that they'd like to ask either of our guests? Put raise your hand or just speak out because there's not very many. Go ahead, Nathan. Um. So I was uh, wondering, uh, could um, like Serbia be involved with this because they border Hungary? Could they like help out with Orban? I was just thinking that maybe they could like influence election that way. They could, they could send people over or whatever, since the way you kind of put it. Or would like Ukraine maybe get involved? I don't know. I know I've never been there. So it's kind of like. Oh, yeah. There, oh. Uh, the, first of all, there are about 300,000 Hungarians living in Serbia. And they are all Fides, uh, pro Fides uh, voters and very eager. So uh, that's definitely the case in Serbia and is definitely the case in. Ukraine. Um, um, they have been importing importing Ukrainians. So, yeah, um, I guess the, just to clarify, so the students know. So basically, there are a lot of Hungarian minorities living in the in the in the yes. ethnic Hungarians living in the neighboring countries. And uh, I don't know when it was exactly, but basically Orban granted all these Hungarian citizenship. So even if they've never lived in Hungary, if they weren't born in Hungary, they, if they're ethnic Hungarians, they're Hungarian, they can vote in Hungarian elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, those are sort of like clear Fidesz votes. And I don't think they're very well supervised because they're just mail-in votes. Uh, they, uh, are. They, they are the ones who count nobody else. So uh, 98% of the votes from Romania went for Fidesz yeah. in 1918. Yeah. So, and now there's a new law, which which means that, which says you can register, if you have an address, you don't have to live there, if you have an address somehow, anywhere in Hungary, you can vote in that district. So these people from Romania or Ukraine or Serbia can, you know, can be bussed in to a voting district that's close, right, to give extra votes to the Fidesz candidate. Yeah. Uh I mean, they that's would, legal. They, they would need the extra votes, Fides, I'm talking about, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> where it is close, okay? They know which, which districts are close, okay? So their game about this new address law is to establish addresses in, in those districts. But those dis- districts might be terribly far from Romania, and I just can't imagine that someone from Romania would just find it so easy to go, let's say, to Sopron. I'm just making making it up, um, and establish uh, addresses there. I mean, you need connections to do that. You need somebody. I I think this uh, Ukrainian um, uh, voters usually are, are, are good only in 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 the next villages because they know the terrain there uh-huh. and also because the um, Fidesz people in these villages recruit the Hungarians from in in, in Ukraine to come and vote okay. and so Dalibor, do you have any thoughts 
So I just was, I was going to make just a short, short, one short comment on um, on the sort of Hungarian-Serbian relationship. So, so right now, um, there is a great degree of affinity between Orban and the, and the Serbian government of Alexander Vucic, who also is a very sort of pro-Chinese voice, right? Both countries are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. There is a railway connection being built between Budapest and Belgrade with Chinese funding. Um, and both of these countries, um, you know, there, there is sort of odd sort of sense of sort of shared historic legacy as sort of former quasi-empires, right? Sort of like these countries that were sort of diminished by, you know, Western interventions in the, in the Hungarian case through the 1923 Anon Treaty with, with, with Serbia, obviously the, the sort of disintegration of Yugoslavia and the NATO interventions. So, so both of these countries have, you know, sort of nationalist governments have access to grind with the West and they do feel very close. And you've seen that uh, there, there are many sort of informal attempts at, at, at sort of bringing the two countries together. Um, and, and for, for, for Vucic, Orban is really sort of the, the best friend he has within the European Union at, at this moment. Whether that means that Serbia will you know, try to do something ahead of the elections, that's, that's very hard to predict. I'm, I'm not quite sure what, how, what would that look like. Um, but, but it's certainly the case that, uh, that they will be cheering very strongly for Orban in, the, in, these, in these coming elections. Does anyone else have a question? Any, any of you guys? No, we don't have any questions. I can't see. Well, we never got to the talk. I wanted to talk more about Marquis eye and if he's problematic or not. And uh, uh, because he, he basically uses this, his rhetoric is very strong. Uh, and he uses um, Orban-like, I mean, it's not as bad as Orban, but he uses Orban-like rhetoric. Uh, that's why, like the thing with the migrants, what he did was, he um, he went down to the border uh, with Serbia, and that's where all the migrants are coming in. Where Orban yeah, built a fence, and he put up a sign. He said, "Here's a here are the number of migrants that Sh uh, George Soros has let in, and he has zero. And here's the number of migrants that Orban Victor has, or Victor Orban has let in, and he had some number uh, because. And this is true, of course, that Orban brought in a lot of uh, immigrants from um, basically from Turkey or Iran or, and China." Uh, you know, he, he was selling out citizenship for a while. So he's just saying, Orban's a bad on migration. He's a hypocrite, right? So, you know, that that's kind of not pro, that's kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric. Or he, another thing that, that Markizai did was, this is the opposition candidate, is that Orban had this uh, anti-LGBT, you know, the anti-gay law yeah. or referendum. So, well, but Orban's son is, according to rumors, is gay. So Mark is I started talking about how Orban's son is gay, and then uh, and 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 there are a lot of I mean Hungary's a small place and you, and there are lots of uh, he said this he goes half of the Fidesz politicians are gay which may be an exaggeration but there are plenty of prominent Fidesz politicians who are have the reputation of being gay uh, and so he just starts throwing that at at Fidesz and of course the other people so like the leader of this other party Momentum she said we can't go down Fidesz's uh, road we've got to sort of be above the the fray and and the Marquis eye is not like that he's he's in the fray um and that's why some i think that's one reason why people are concerned about him and his rhetoric is very strong um i suggest that you read an article in yesterday's uh 
24 hours, you know, 24. Yes, uh -huh, yes, uh-huh. Uh, there is a portrait of, uh, of uh, Mark Izoi, which I found very, very interesting. And okay, very I'll, I'll take a look. I'll try to take a look. Maybe if, um, I think you have to, I think Hungary is so far gone that you got to play, as I have a different view, you got to play hardball. Um, and, and my thought is the first step is just to get Fidesz out of power and all these other problems will come. But... Um, but right now, the, the, the historic mission is just to dis dislodge Fidesz. So it, it's well, not going to be pretty no that, matter how. That, that's all Hungarians think. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, well, I, so I'm thinking like that. So we can't... Anyway, we, I wanted to have a whole debate on that. I, I don't think Dalibor agrees. So I've got the most pessimistic uh, view. Uh, I don't know. Go ahead. Do you want to say one thing, Dalibor? Just, just, just two quick sentences. So, so I'm not terribly bothered by the fact that, that Markizai is taking a... If you will, conservative positions on 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 this sort of divisive social and cultural issues. Uh, in a way, it was a very astute move on the part of the opposition to select somebody like him as as their leader. You know, he's a observant Catholic father of seven, uh, fairly you know, conservative in in the in the conventional sense. So he is going to be immune to the usual. Criticisms and and attacks that 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 have come from from Fidesz's side against you know the opposition and 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 and, and his leadership. Like you know, he's not certainly not an agent of George Soros. He is not you know a, an actor like you know like recruited by the international left to subvert Hungarian nationhood. Like he's somebody who has these sort of you know patriotic and conservative credentials that are at par. With anybody's from 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 Fidesz, and and that that to me is almost a necessary condition to to prevail in a in an election in a divided country like like like, like Hungary in 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 the, in the present situation. So so I think I would I mean I would give him uh, quite a bit of leeway on that front, uh, unlike unlike David. I'm though I am concerned obviously about the future and like about you know about how 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 this. How this opposition, this united opposition, will govern should it should it prevail? Um, because because really the sort of un underlying sort of fundamental characteristic of Hungary at the present moment is that it's extremely polarized and that it doesn't seem to have that sort of basic procedural agreement on you know shared rules of the democratic game going forward. And that's that's not uh, a pleasant situation to be in as a, as a democracy because if you don't have that sort of basic agreement then 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 then, then really it is might that makes right uh, oh i agree with you that uh, he is the best candidate what i am worried about is that the parties which actually uh, will be in parliament let, let's assume that they win um they will have to support him and uh, if they think drastically differently from the prime minister how it is going to work well the i mean one thing that's clear i think is that if they win they're going to start tinkering with the constitution there's more and more signs that they've, they've got a team together they're thinking about it i mean there was this article today they may not change the constitution completely or they're not going to change the constitution completely they said but they're going to tinker with things they're going to try to uh, they're going to try to make constitutional changes which is uh, i mean that that is clear 
Um, and so that will raise questions about how they do that in terms of are they stepping outside they outside the constitutional order or are they comp I mean how they're going to do it exactly is an issue. Um, uh, but that's that's the first thing they're going to do. Uh, I, I I think if they're in, in, and I think that the uh, this is a point on which the opposition. And Mark Isire, well, maybe at least the major opposition, so the party, the party of uh, Clara Dobrev and Durchan, they, she was saying, you know, we're going to just change the Constitution. And Mark Isai saying the same thing. On this question of the need for tinkering with the Constitution, there, my impression is there's quite a lot of agreement among the opposition. Um, and that's what that's what they're going to do, I think. And then they may, they may fall or collapse or who knows what's going to happen. I mean, I don't... Um, but it's going to be like uh, bringing an end to this fetus thing is going to be step by step. And so, uh, well, that's my thought. So you got to start knocking it down. I don't know um, if someone has a thought. And I should, we're going over here. Well, uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, so so my, my basic sense is, um, you know, like of as as in other divided societies, including you know in the United States, there is a sort of you know part of the electorate that likes Fidesz, likes Viktor Orban, and those people, you know, they're not going anywhere. You can at best hope to chip away some of you know the the, the support for Fidesz gradually over time with better governance, um, but there is uh, there is a real danger in. In, in, in sort of, you know, assuming that, uh, you know, Fidesz and, and the, you know, 10-year, 12-year majority that they've enjoyed in Parliament is somehow a, a sort of mistake that can be undone through some, some you know, constitutional or, 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 or legal fix. Um, and and I, I think, you know, ma managing that sort of disagreement and polarization within the country that that really boils down to disagreements over some very fundamental questions you know it's it's a very difficult thing in in in, in all democratic societies so I'm i mean sure I, I'm optimistic or pessimistic i'm i'm yeah i'm, I'm just you know wary of <laughs> yeah wary is a good word i mean i think that's true i wonder i, I wonder how many people uh, uh support fetus at this point for reasons of sort of ideological commitment, other as opposed to the fact that they've sort of been bought off, or they're getting, or they 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 are compromised, or they just are afraid of change. I I mean I could be wrong, but I, I my sense is that the the sort of like I don't know the 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 people who believe in Fides or ideologically committed is is lower is much smaller than the people who support Fides and the people who support Fides do so for self interested reasons or for reasons of fear and so forth. But you know, it's a bias, right? I mean, it's not that's not based on any data. That's just my perception when I visit the country. So I don't know. I mean, I definitely there certainly is a Fidesz base of support. So I yeah. mean, it's it's a problem. There's some hardcore, yeah. Yeah. I just read an interesting report. <clears throat> uh, there is a fellow in Page, where actually I'm far from originally, um, uh, who uh, does a lot of. Uh, reporting on affairs of uh, the countryside. And uh, so he went to some of these villages in the county of Boronia, which is in terrible shape, you know, very, very poor. And he went to villages not very far from the cities, maybe about 30 kilometers, and wanted to convince the folks in the villages 
to sit down with him and listen to Vodja Radio, Hirodo, and tell and discuss what they believe and why they believe it, or he wouldn't believe, or he would explain. Not one person would sit down with him. There were 26 people he talked to. They don't, uh, the fellow, one fellow said, I don't want to listen to it because I like my opinion as it is. So, All right, well, anyway, thank you guys. I kept you guys over, uh, so I really well, appreciate it. Okay, good. Well, it was fun for me. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, I'm going to, I'll let you guys go because I've got to talk to the students. And you guys are willing to stay over, but you know students are never willing to stay over. So I've got to. <laughs> it was nice to be here. Uh, yeah, thanks very much, Ava. Thanks, Stella. Thank you very I much for the invitation. It was great to meet you all. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. You didn't see me, my lovely face. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Gracias. Okay. Right. Good. Thank you very much. See you, people. A viszontlátásra, Éva. Nem adjunk fel a harcot. Majd elmesélem neked a győzelemről, mikor fönt találkozunk. Addig, Isten veled.